Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, my dear friends, this is the uh, the 11th sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. And this evening's study is James chapter 3, uh, verses 2b to 12. Now, we've seen how James has completed his main theological point concerning the simple fact that there is a total transformation of the believer in Christ. And because of this transformation, their life and their actions are fundamentally changed. And so he continues in this vein, always keeping the goal of Christian maturity, conformity to Jesus Christ at the center. We've seen how he has linked trials with perfection and maturity in chapter 1, and how he further illustrated this point in the life of Abraham and of Rahab, both responding to the word of God, one offering his son as sacrifice, the other in protecting the Israelite spies. Both of them, Rahab and Abraham, thus realizing or completing, that is, brought to maturity their faith in the Lord Jesus. So this Christian maturity is a consistent Christian life of obedience to God's word. So James turns once more to an application of this rich biblical principle in the life of the believer, specifically in the area of speech, which he summarizes with the word the tongue. Now, we saw last time, by way of introduction to this application, how James links the mastery of the tongue with the masters of the tongue, namely teachers. We suggested that James writes this way because he most likely witnessed firsthand the fallout of the synagogue tradition that continued in the early church of Jewish Christian believers, the one driven by social class and rhetorical quick-wittedness that were hallmarks of the rabbi, the teacher. How the synagogue, which highly honored teachers and encouraged congregational to and fro in debate, created a process that could and did lead to rivalry and division as teachers attempted to secure a following. Now, James, therefore, was well aware that sinful self-exaltation, indeed of covetousness, were driving some to become teachers. So he writes a solemn warning with some very clear reasoning as to why one should be careful in assuming the position of a spiritual teacher. Teachers are intended to have a mastery of God's word. Therefore, they will be judged according 
to that word much more strictly. Increased mastery equals increased accountability. James urges caution in becoming a teacher because he understands our sin natures. He says, we all sin many times and in many ways. He's telling believers, be careful about arrogantly assuming the self-promoting position of a teacher because everyone regularly sins in many different ways. Therefore, the spiritually immature teacher falls into peril because of his unbridled tongue. It is the perfect man who is also able to bridle his whole body, says James. In other words, the man who has the sum of Christian maturity. This is the teacher for whom we should pray for. This natural condition of our fallen selves is a hallmark of ours, isn't it? That we can all sin with the tongue so easily. He wants those to, who teach to have control over their tongues because a chaste tongue will indicate a pure heart, a life submitted to God. Therefore, control of the tongue, bridling the tongue, is evidence of a spiritual maturity. A believer has such resources, you see, doesn't he or she? You've received God's new birth in Christ Jesus. You have his infallible word to select the right thing to say. And so our mastery of the tongue as believers is always judged best when we speak much of the grace of Jesus Christ in our hearts. So the believer, like the teacher who gains such mastery, is like an old country doctor who can go to a shelf and draw one thing and another to mix a healing medicine for the sin-sick soul. Does it remind you of anyone? Isn't that how Jesus Christ behaved as well? And we should not be surprised, should we? Because the mouth that speaks from a heart in which Christ sits enthroned will have the right thing to say to that sin-sick person. Our speech is the reporter of our heart. So James continues this sense of warning now, expanding it from his example with other examples here. The first thing he wants us to understand is the disproportionate power of the tongue. And he illustrates this as the first point in verses 3 to 5a. The simile he uses are the horse's bit and the rudder. Let's consider these. A horse is a very powerful animal. A draft horse can easily carry uh, 550 pounds on its back. The best Olympic athlete, weightlifter, would struggle to deadlift that kind of weight. An unburdened quarter horse can sprint at 55 miles an hour. That's a quarter mile in about 22 seconds. War horses were the equivalent 
of the ancient tank on the battlefield, striking terror in the infantry that stood before them. The horse is a roar of power. It place a bridle and bit in its mouth, take a slight 100-pound woman and put it on its back, who's an experienced horsewoman, and the animal can literally be made to dance. The same principle applies to ancient ships. From the small fishing boat to ships of that time large enough to carry 250 to a thousand passengers were all steered by an amazingly small rudder. Well, the physics of water pressure displacement is still the same today. So from the sleekest rowing eight you might spy on the Schuylkill River in practice, to the massive container cargo ship on the ocean, the one who controls the rudder controls the ship. Well, Martin Luther wrote this of the tongue. That little bit of flesh between the jaws is a concealed and dangerous weapon. So also James writes here, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Mark Antony's speech at Caesar's funeral transformed a revolution. Adolf Hitler's speech stirred up German nationalism to the extent that it destroyed itself and European civilization. Winston Churchill's tongue fortified a defeated and frightened people to stand alone against fascism. It's just two ounces or 56 grams of muscles and mucous membrane, but it has the power to change human history. But our own lives are evidence enough of this, aren't they? We should never doubt the power of the tiny tongue, never underestimate its power. But it is not its power for good, according to God's common grace, in terms of, say, Winston Churchill, but its corruption due to our sinful nature that has James's attention and his warning because he goes from its disproportionate power to its devastation in the verses that follow. He describes their destructive power of the tongue in terms of a forest fire, well, for your homework, you might want to try this. Do a Google search of images. Look for a microscopic image of the human tongue. Do you know what you'll find? A strange, pitted, mountainous, barbed landscape that looks more like a distant alien moon devoid of life than anything living or human. That's the metaphor here, this smoldering, lunar landscape of devastation that follows the wildfire. For the past several years, we've seen this in the news, haven't we? Images of bushfires in eastern Australia and on the west coast. Wildfires that move so fast 
that cars at speed can be overwhelmed. Millions of dollars in property destroyed, hundreds of human lives lost, entire animal and plant species in a region wiped out or brought to the edge of extinction. In Australia, ignited from a spark caused by lightning. And in West Coast, more embarrassing, from the spark of a firework gone wrong. Now James is saying that those who misuse the tongue are guilty of spiritual arson. A mere spark of an ill-spoken word can produce a firestorm that annihilates everything it touches. But he goes further here. He goes deeper here. This fire has a source in a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now, I want to pause for a moment and look at this more closely because James uses the sense of world here in the same way that we saw in our study of the first letter of John. The world is the entire sweep of fallen creation, both the civilized, the peopled world, and the natural world of flora and fauna. This is a cosmic wickedness that stains the entire course of life. This is a technical term from the mystery religions of the day. In other words, James means the entire circle of life, the whole circle of life from birth, childhood, youth, maturity, senescence, and death. We can't escape it. And just to make sure that he's understood... He sets his last most graphic image of the source of the tongue's destructive power in the fire of hell itself. In the same way, he's used the entire scope of creation in the world, the whole circle of life in terms of humanity and all living creatures. Here, setting on fire is in the present tense. In other words, it is continually set on fire by hell. It is, in other words, a quenchless fire. It never runs out of fuel. James uses the same word for hell here that his half-brother Jesus used. It is Gehenna. In other words, that picture of the perpetually burning garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, a place of small fires and smoke and filth, where Jesus said, the continually gnawing worm, the continually burning of chaotic desire is never put out. This is what fuels the restless tongue, pollutes us with its filthy desires. The tongue has no bone, but it can murder reputations. Now we know this, don't we? For ourselves, gossip, innuendo, flattery, criticism are all the weapons of hell. And in these light 
speed days of social media, we have even become used to them. Slander against a person's honor that you might see in 140 characters in a century ago would result in pistols at dawn unless the slander was withdrawn. But today, it gets a shrug, or worse, something even more slanderous, more gossipy. Gossip, innuendo, flattery, criticism. But at the very bottom is blasphemy itself. Jesus taught this, didn't he? In Matthew 12, that when one attributes the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, he does it not with his hands, but how? With his tongue. Listen to what Jesus said. To call evil good and good evil. To call, yeah? You see? To see the divine good and call it satanic evil. Below this lowest deep, there is not a lower still. This ultimate destruction of one's own soul is accomplished by the tongue. So one could say this, that the destructive power of the tongue is greater than that of the Chicxulub asteroid. What do I mean by that? Well, the Chicxulub asteroid is the name of the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. A worldwide catastrophe. But, remember, the asteroid's power was limited. It was physical and temporary. Millions of years later, and the evidence is hard to find. But the power of the tongue is spiritual and has an eternal consequence. That's how destructive it truly is. We see it from the perspective of our Heavenly Father. It is tragically destructive, for it can bring souls to the depth of hell itself. But what of the tragic inconsistency of the tongue? Why does he end there? Well, he ends his series of metaphors with the restlessness of the tongue in verses 7 and 8. He speaks of how beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Now notice what James is doing here. He's comparing the restless tongue to an untamed beast. The restlessness of the tongue is now the reporter of a different kind of heart, a restless heart. And such inconstancy, such restlessness, is further illustrated in verses 9 to 12. In the way in which we bless our Lord and Father, but we curse people who are made in God's likeness, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Do you see the connection James is making here? It goes right back to the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. 
The inconsistency of the tongue reveals the double-mindedness of the soul. And James highlights this dangerous inconsistency for a simple reason, as he did there. For the person with this must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, he writes in chapter 1. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Both men and women who cannot make up their mind are irresolute, where moral choices are concerned, will stay adrift, tossed here and there. Thus they reveal in their speech an attitude that does not harmonize with our Heavenly Fathers. In other words, to be divided in your soul is more like, well, I have an aspiration for God, but I do not want to be under God. I want control. And the result is a restlessness, never satisfied restlessness. And this is revealed in the inconstancy and inconsistency of the tongue. For in the Christian who may do many things, we bless our Lord and Father, but in the heart still, they quietly refuse to let God interfere in his or her daily life. And with it, then we curse people who are made in God's likeness. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. What she's saying is, well, be honest. Are you skilled in your religious vocabulary so that at church you appear holy and good? But at home you are sarcastic with your family or critical of another? What is the consequence of the one who is unwilling to trust in Christ once for all and stay the course in loyalty to him? Double-mindedness. Instability in all his ways. Like a child who starts a small lie, a little lie, that requires another lie to cover and another and another. And before they realize that they're painted into a corner and a father or mother in their wisdom can see it all and shows them the foolishness of that instability. Do we feel challenged by James's teaching? I hope we do. But be encouraged as well. For there is a Savior. A Savior who was able to tame the tongue. He tamed his. His mouth was closed as the mockers mocked. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he was dumb. He didn't speak. St. Augustine wrote it like this. Notice he says, James does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no one of men. So that when it is tamed, we confess that this is brought about by the pity, the help, by the grace of God. Believers are born-again creatures, birthed by his word of truth as a firstfruit. Therefore, we must speak differently. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 5. The Lord God has given me the tongue of of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He 
He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. My dear friends, we can gain a mastery over our tongues because God, the Holy Spirit, has a great desire that the church at large learns to control the tongue. God will bring mastery of the tongue in the reminder of Jesus Christ who saved you. Like Isaiah, we must submit to his cleansing touch that is brought about by our confession of the abuse of the tongue so that we too can receive that same healing cauterization with the living burning coal as the seraphim did as he touched the mouth and lips of Isaiah. Now we can serve. Here I am. Send me. Let me speak the healing ointment of the gospel to that sing-sick soul. We also must work hand in hand in an ongoing prayerfulness regarding our tongues. Regular, detailed prayer. We must bring this up continually, for the engine is ever active. And we know where it comes from now, don't we? From the pit of hell itself. We must discipline ourselves regarding the use of the tongue, to speak or to be silent. Better to be silent, isn't it? Not to criticize, not to give or receive gossip, not to belittle or demean or falsely flatter, not to lie, not to boast, but in humility and in love to quietly correct. We must pray for one another. There's an old hymn that says it like this. This is my prayer for you, my dear friend, and for me. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and all I say. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.